Hey, this is Akuya Jamfi, and you're listening to TBB Talks, a podcast where we from the British Blacklist bring you our conversations with creative black folk from the UK and across the globe. We'll be talking to up and comings, headline popping, and the legends from screen, stage, music, and literature. Basically, if they're creative, we'll be talking to them. And we hope to shed some insight into their lives, the work that they choose, who their inspirations are, how they stay motivated, and more importantly, how they keep sane being black in the arts and entertainment world. How are you? I'm fine, how are you? I'm fine, thank you. Hanging in there. It's that promo run. I know it's always fun doing these things um, and to get the film out there, but do you ever, obviously it's tiring. How do you kind of maintain through it all? I think I should probably take better self-care than I do. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I, I take enough to get me by. You know, I think it's just making sure that you you get enough sleep. And doing the, the run in this way is a bit like making the, the project in the first place. You get one go at it. You yeah. get one shot. Yeah. And you know that. And so, you know, you've got adrenaline running the whole time because you want to make sure that you get all the messages and the thoughts and the, the intentions across. So I think it's after that where there's a kind of crash. Yeah. Um, and that's when you've really got to take care of yourself very, very much. Yeah, definitely. I can't believe this is our first actual interview. Like, it seems like it is. we talk it all is. the time and then this is like the first formality. So this yes, is nice. Hi. Hi. <laughs> Hi. So just going a little bit backwards before we go into talking about Where Hands Touch. Um, mm. Why did you move from acting to behind the camera? Not only that, you didn't just move from on screen to behind the screen, you sat in that revered chair, the director's chair, I should say. I took up that space. Yes. Yeah, it has not been hours to take up. Exactly. Um, why did I do it? Well, first and foremost, well, I left acting for different reasons to mm. why I went into um, writing and directing, if that makes sense. Yeah. So I left acting because I was just bad at it. I was bad um, and I have respect for actors and I have respect for great actors, particularly the kids show that I was in, Grange Hill. I was actually surrounded by really good actors, you know, really, really great artists and performers. And I very much admired what they did. And I very much admired the way that they were able to tell stories and communicate these stories through their craft. And I couldn't do that. Um, I was too self-aware. I just wasn't good. Before you continue, I just, it's, I kind of like want to give you a round of applause for recognising that you're so self-aware at such a young age. Nowadays, people like, you know, they've got this false thing where, you know, the <laughs> pop idol X Factor type thing where anyone exactly. can be a star and we can all make it. And not many people are actually like, you know what, I shouldn't be in this lane. Let me take myself away from it. So was mm-hmm. it even was it nerve wracking to say, OK, I'm not going to do that? Or you were just like, no, this is not me, regardless. You just didn't care. Like, I'm not an actor. It was both, actually. Okay. It was all of the above. Just because you're not good at something, it doesn't mean to say you know how to do something else. Yeah. And so I, I didn't have anything to fall back on. All of my peers, all of the people around me, my friends had prepared to go to college and university. And they knew what, you know, even if it was only that they knew what subjects they were going to take or mm. what they were going to study, they knew what they were doing next. And I didn't. I had no clue. So it was it was nerve-wracking. But at the same time, I, I was, had to be very honest with myself because it caused distress in my body. Mm. You know, being in front of the camera was not good feeling for me. So it wasn't kind of like I've oh, been down on myself. It really was a question of uh, even at that young age, if you're going to take care of yourself, then putting yourself in front of the camera is not something for you and you, you need to acknowledge that. Yeah. So it was hard. And I remember the 
day I decided literally, okay, now I'm going to do it. I wrote to my agent. There was no email back then. And I posted the letter oh that gosh. evening, 6.30. I wanted it to catch the 7 o'clock post because I knew oh, if wow. I slept on it, I wouldn't do it in the morning. I'd be too afraid. Yeah. Um, so I did it and I got rid of my agent. And, you know, for anybody who's in acting, directing, writing, getting an agent is one of the holy grails. It's yeah. very, very important. But I was getting rid of mine. And that, that was scary. And then you thought, okay, you know what? I'm not going to do on screen. I'm going to be a director. Not so easy. <laughs> not so straightforward as that. Mum said, go to secretarial school. You know, you'll always have something to fall back on if you can type and if you have good administrative skills. Mm. And so I went to a very, very old-fashioned secretarial school on Tottenham Court Road. And, and part of that was um, doing work experience. And my work experience was at Heinemann books. And I loved stories. Mm. And so, you know, my job was to go through the newspapers and find references to the writers that Heinemann published at the time. Yeah. So Jackie Collins, people like that. But I was still working in TV to a certain extent because I'd gotten a job presenting in TV. And I thought presenting wasn't quite acting. Yeah. And plus it was paying me money as well. So a couple of days a week, I would go off and do that. And so I got fired from the job I was in. Jeez because they worked out that I was doing something else. Okay. Um, and I left college, and I was just trying to get my typing speed up. And in trying to do that, I, I typed out a script. Um, but I just thought it was a load of nonsense, to be honest with you. But when, <laughs> when I finished it, I felt a pride in it that I hadn't felt as an actor. Okay. Um, I felt like, wow, there's something here. I don't know what it is, but there is something here. And I won't go exactly into what the story is, because, mm. you know, I might still make it. You might it. still make it, yeah. um, but involved everything that I am, you know, culturally and socially and in terms of gender, my heritage and my parents. And, you know, it very much submerged myself in my world and projected that into the script. Mm. And I felt proud of it. So that's how I knew I wasn't being down on myself about acting is because I had the ability to pat myself on the back yeah, at various yeah. times. In the way and where you um, felt comfortable in doing something and it felt natural, more natural to yeah, you. Yeah, and it felt natural because I then decided to send it out. But when I sent it out, I decided to send it out in in my mother's maiden name because I thought that the producers I'd be sending it to, they knew me as an actress, as a child actress at that. Yeah. And um, I, I was concerned that they wouldn't take me seriously because they still thought of me as a kid. Of course. Early on, I had also allowed an agent to read the script and she had said, oh, I want to represent you. And I didn't believe her. Mm -hmm. So I didn't go with her. Um, eventually, I was on holiday in Los Angeles and a friend of a friend had passed my script on, a guy called Chuck Sutton, mm -hmm. had passed my script on to someone at Fox and Fox had called me in for a meeting. And I'd never, ever been to a professional meeting yeah. before. So um, I rocked up at the entire Fox studio in Los Angeles wearing cut-down jeans and a cut-down T-shirt <laughs> and um, chaliwaki. <laughs> okay, flip-flops for anyone who doesn't anyone know where doesn't they know. are. I was, was going to let it run because, you know, I'm sure people know now. The cultures okay. have, have bridged. <laughs> but yes, chaliwaki. Pair of flip-flops and uh, white flip-flops. And I went in for this meeting and it was amazing because it was two women executives, two oh, wow. female executives who... Um, did not bat an eyelid at my inappropriate presence. Yeah. 
they didn't do anything wrong in that meeting at all. They were just brilliant. They were an absolute example of, you know, how we should all be, mm. especially to, to young people yeah. um, who are breaking into the industry. And they talked to me about my work. That's all they were interested in. They talked to me about my characters, the structure. They talked to me in the most positive way about all of it. And I came out and they said to me, you know, look, we can't commission it because we've got things that we think overlap slightly, but we think you're great and we think you can write and we want to keep in touch because we want to do something with you okay. one day. And so I came out just feeling really buoyed by the creative discussions. Mm. They talked to me about they all the things that interested me. Yeah. yeah, they really did. So I came back to London, sent it off to um, some of those producers that I knew, and one of them bit. And when one of them bit, I then had to find an agent because I couldn't, you know, represent myself. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of them me and said, you know, come for a meeting. I wrote back to the agent who said that she would look after me. And um, said, did you mean it? When you said you would look after me? And she said, of course I did. I wasn't joking. She took me out for lunch and she began to represent me and she represented me for 20 years and oh, was the agent wow. involved in um, me making my first film as well. I just love the fact that you you found your passion not so, obviously it wasn't quickly, but it seems just so seamless and you really find your passion quite early. So being a, you're a woman op- occupying a very male-dominated space, mm. what is the industry's issue with women directors? Why is it that we've only got, what what was it? The, st- the stats show that just 11% of the higher grossies, highest grossing films in the States last year, was it? Were directed by women with Patty Jenkins' Wonder Woman being the highest grossing. And in the UK, I mean, the numbers are even more dire when it for, for for direct for, for women directors and then on top you're a woman of color and you know i just want to add some more figures into that i think it was i think slate is the organization i hope i've got their their name right that um also published figures not so long ago showing that the, on average movies under 25 million which is the majority of movies in the uk yeah. directed by women suffer from something like 25 percent less in terms of budget than those um of men and oh. yet um what we also know is that films that are written by women actually tend to do better on average in the box office than yeah. those written by men. So as study shows, that you know, women are doing it with their hands tied behind their backs in, in ways. We're definitely not operating on a level playing field and we have to compete in that environment. And we are more than holding our own when we are allowed to tell these stories. You know, what is the problem? Once you realise that women's films, given the same level of attention, marketing budget, you know, budgets to make the film in the first place, can do as well, if not as better than some men, then what you realise is it isn't about money anymore. I used to think it was a business thing. And, you know, when we, when we start to do the same business with our films, you know, you'll see more of us. But you start to realise that there, there's more than bias going on here. You know, yeah. there's more than just um, this person looks like me and I recognise them and I recognise their story. Therefore, I want to commission their story. You realise it really becomes, you know, something that I've, I've sort of avoided saying for a long time, I think. But it becomes willful in terms of how we can be left out um, yeah. in some areas. And I think that what we all have to acknowledge, because, you know, until we can really look at the wound, we really can't heal it. What is it? um, One of your journalists said to me actually just last night, Lee Manzini said to me, is it Rumi? I'm going to quote him all wrong. Um, (laughs) He says that a wound is where the light comes through. And until we look at it, we shine a light on it, we can't heal it. I think the reality, it comes down to the sharing of power. That's it. It yeah. comes down to the sharing of the space and the sharing of power, whether we're talking about any underrepresented group, whether it's women, whether it's people of colour, most concerning women. 
when we yeah. talk about um, people of colour. Um, it becomes about the sharing of power and, and it becomes, you know, it's there on so many levels because as we attempt to round this giant corner that we're all attempting to round now through campaigns like Oscar So White and, um, you know, all of the various organisations that have all the diversity. Yeah, um, <laughs> the endless uh, list. The endless, the endless diversity schemes that, yes. that, that we have. Um, what we know is that it, it has to be tackled in so many ways. You can give me all the work you want to give me, but ultimately my work is still out there being judged by people who look like those and come from the same backgrounds as the people who had the privilege to tell the films, exactly. to tell the stories and make the film since film began. So those are the people who've curated our taste. Those mm. are the people who have curated popular culture in terms of filmmaking and even independent filmmaking. Those are the people that have decided what's right and what's wrong, what's good and what's bad in mm. those binary terms. We constantly talk about the fact that gays matters. But what happens when that day is one that you, as someone who's occupied that space and had that privilege since time began, what happens when it's completely it's out of the realm, real recognition, it's challenged, and ultimately you'll say things like, you got the tone wrong. Yeah, um, <laughs> nitpicking. got the tone wrong by whose judgment I make the kind of films that have the tone applied to them that I miss from a John Wayne Western that I don't get from a, an episode of Sex in the City, even though yeah. I love that show, it doesn't include me or you. You're not an easy filmmaker. You don't tell easy, breezy stories as well that don't yeah. make them feel comfortable. It challenges perceptions and it challenges a narrative that has not... It's not allowed. I would describe you as political. You're a historian. Mm -hmm. You're a social mm -hmm. commentator. You're a hopeless mm -hmm. romantic. Um, but <laughs> but your, your stories aren't easy. You have films that are led no. by characters who are trying to, who are not willing to be confined or defined by the establishment. So, I mean, I'm going to bring this to where um, hands touch. But Absolutely. Why, how would you describe yourself as a filmmaker? And then what was it about the story behind Where Hands Touch that made you say, yeah, this is another one I want to add to my canon because I'm not take, I'm not going to let this establishment tell me what type of filmmaker I'm going to be as a woman, especially, and what stories mm. I want to tell. So what, mm. what was it? What is that thing that you mm -hmm. have? I was raised by Kwame and Comfort, two yes. people who were born in a, in a colony and saw that colony become independent and came to England to birth and raise their children and just refused to be defined by other people. Mm. And they raised children who, who chose to do the same. And the truth is that I'm not alone. I am absolutely not alone. I'm around people every day just like me who are refusing to be defined. And the fact that their stories don't make it to screen and that the kinds of stories that we see on screen, again, have have been impacted by those who have curated our taste, whether we like it or not, is neither here nor there for me. Key thing about where hands touch is that essentially if people really choose to think about it, and that is a choice, by the way, yeah. but if people really choose to think about it, it is absolutely about the radicalisation of a generation of children. And the key thing that I discovered and realised when I really started thinking about radicalisation is that it bypasses the brain, it bypasses the intellect, and it goes straight to the heart. Mm -hmm. The other day, I was talking about Sex in the City 1, and I was talking about it being my guilty pleasure Yes. on another podcast. And I, so I was doing my best really to justify why it should be guilty pleasure and I was sort of saying that you know as a kid I was radicalized into the idea of the fairy tale yeah. and the fairy tale allowing me to believe that my prince charming was going to come along and rescue me and save me mm. and so as an adult what I constantly fight that radicalization that which I was raised through culture and society to be an absolute mm. and yet as an adult and when I use my intellect and my mind I know prince charming isn't coming from anywhere to save me or do anything <laughs> and we have to learn and to so, save ourselves exactly and so radicalization is there 
there in all in all walks of life. Mm. And what happens when you're radicalized enough into believing that your story looks a certain way, your story should be a certain thing. The story of people who look like you can only fit within the confines of particular parameters Mm -hmm. is you lose sight of the fact that you didn't create those parameters you didn't create those confines we all have been radicalized and when you challenge that like I say you often are told you're wrong or your tone is off what that means is that more of us have to continue to tell our stories yeah because if somebody gave you and I the same script we would not it in the same way we have unique gazes we are not a monolith as women as women of colour, as black people, we are not a monolith. I know my gaze has power. I know that my gaze has value. Why do I know it? Because I know yours does. Exactly. I'm not here to tell the, the simple stories because people's lives aren't simple. People's lives are complex. Yeah. People's lives are nuanced. And the fact that we've been told as black people that our lives have to be simplified and filtered down to a very basic expression of life on screen... That is not a truth that I wish to continue to perpetrate. Yeah, because I was going to say, we're, not, we're having this discussion about a story that I would have never conceived of, even with Belle, when you did Belle, definitely was a forgotten history. Who knew who Belle was? But you unearthed that story. And then once again, yeah. you unearthed another story, the mm-hmm. African-German Holocaust survivors, who I could never have, I wouldn't have thought about it because the Holocaust story is dominated by the Jewish people, which is not a criticism, it is what it is. It's a, it's a story dominated by the Jews and the Nazis and the American and British war heroes. I... Yes, the African story and black history is also dominated. Exactly, by everybody else but not... ourselves. But also Afro-European stories don't really figure. Those of us who are born of the diaspora and raised in Europe, if I say Afro-European, it sounds a little bit off, it sounds a little bit weird, and yet African-American isn't. Exactly. So I'm sorry, I was going to say, what was it like so uncovering this history? Because you spoke to black Holocaust survivors. I can only ask you, what was it like mining all that information to create this story? How did you feel? Did you feel it was like... moving and it was a really, really humbling experience to go through because mm. I did what so many other people have done, you know, when they've eventually heard about my story is I came to it with assumptions and I came to it with a set of beliefs and I came to it with this idea that I could judge these people through my gaze and yeah. my experience and actually my privilege. And that is the privilege to exist within a community, a community of people who look like me, Mm. which is something that Afro-Germans did not have the privilege to experience. Theirs was persecution in isolation. Mm. And so it was humbling to hear elderly people speaking about a journey towards exploring and finding their moral code, but also the the kind of identity crisis that was foisted upon them when they were put into situations where they were literally surrounded by white supremacy. Mm. Nowhere to run to. All Jews were gone. Only Germans who were so-called Aryan, as Hitler would put it, yes. who were mandatorily in the Hitler Youth if they were young and if they were older, had to be working for the National Socialist regime in some way. And I say that because those people who were working in factories, those people who were creating parts for the fighter planes, who were creating parts for the cars and the tanks, mm. they also were contributing to the National Socialist regime. So it wasn't just administrators and SS officers. Everybody in Germany at the time was doing it. Initially, in the beginning, I was holding these children to a higher standard of accountability than I was holding everybody else in Nazi Germany at the time. I somehow assumed, presumed and judged that they should know more morally Mm. than most adult white people did not choose to know at the time. Why do we do that to underrepresented groups? Why do we do that to black children in particular? So it was humbling to understand and have to ask the question, my God, who would I be if I were challenged and presented with the kind of identity crisis-inducing world and life 
that these children were because they had nobody else to turn to. And identity is such an important thing today. Everyone's trying to find their tribe, to find who they are. There are a few films coming out about black people who, especially in the time of West African kids, were farmed, were fostered, and yeah. growing up in an environment where everyone's yeah. white and you've got to stand out and be confident in who you are. So I can totally understand that. Well, now I understand. Watching Where Hands Touch gave me some insight into this world. And so what was it like working with George and Amanda, your two lead characters, as Lena and Lutz? How did they adapt to this story and get into that world? And how did you get them to understand the depth and the weight of what they were, what the story they were had they had to tell? It was really important in the beginning of her. I really thought that I was going to have to cast somebody much older than the character of Lena to play her, and that okay. worried me. If you believe this story works, it only works because the characters are young. Because George Mackay's character is a, a German boy who, as I keep saying, is in the Hitler Youth as a mandatory requirement. It only works if you understand that they're young and that they. They are existing in this society where these young minds are being moulded in every single way. There's nothing to challenge outside of Hitler's vision of life. So any teachers might question it would be gone. Any books had been burned and removed. As you know, there was no social or cultural influence mm. that hadn't been tainted by Hitler. So hard to imagine if you're Amanda and George's age, you know, English and, and American. And so my biggest question with Amanda was, you know, could we strip back the modernness? And then the understanding understanding of what it is to be European. Well, her father's Europeans, not Americans. That was useful to start with. But Amanda has a genuine nuanced understanding of some quite complicated, I think, concepts sometimes. Concepts that I have to rack my brain to get my head around sometimes. And what I realised and understood as I sat with her and talked about this film and after she read the script was that she got it in the way that I needed her to get it, which was in the way of a 17-year-old girl. Mm. I didn't want her to get it in the way of a 28-year-old woman. And that allowed me a level of authenticity because the, the curiosity, the newness, the, 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 the wish to push the boundaries and be a teenager and be a, a, a young person who's no longer a child but not yet a woman as you come of age and you struggle to find your independence. Mm. But then against the backdrop of a world that's gone crazy, that those human conditions of coming of age cannot be stripped from you, but at the same time you're doing it at a time when the risks are so high and you're doing it in a context where the world is divided into those who are extremely persecuted and being murdered by a machine and those who are not. Yeah. And you, you come somewhere in the middle where mm, you could be murdered on the wrong day or you might not. Yeah. You could end up being whipped off to a camp or you might not. And so how you quantify the danger as an extremely young adult is very hard. And Amanda could understand that. And George understood this from the beginning and really, really wanted to approach it from the point of view of what it was to be the son of an SS officer, to have been completely radicalised. Well, I say completely because definitely he was not extreme in the sense no. that, you know, one of the things about Hitler's Germany is the people they were able to make the cruelest often were the youngest because mm. often they hadn't fully discovered love. They hadn't really formed relationships to really mm. care about humanity in the way that old, some older people had. And George is definitely not one of those. He is someone who questions and he asks questions and when he knows better, he asks deeper questions yeah. about the things he's learning about. But what he was able to do was understand a boy who has been told by his entire world we lost World War One, and in order to get our honour back, we have to win World War Two, and to really believe that fighting is about war with other soldiers. And that point where he has to discover that this war is also about killing mm. Germany's own people mm. is profound for him. And I just think he was able to just navigate that in such an important way.
Well, I could talk to you forever and ever and ever, but I have to go. I really appreciate talking to you. And Where Hands Touches in cinemas from the 10th, Friday 10th. Friday the 10th, this Friday. Thank yes. you so, so much. It's been so good to talk to you, family. I know. Thank you so much. We will catch up soon and talk forever and longer again. Thank you. Bye-bye. Take bye. care. Bye.